Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 93. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a truth how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story and to 2018. We hope your holiday season was relaxing and fun, and you're ready for a refreshing new year. Steve and I enjoyed sweet times with family and friends over the holidays and are happy to share a new friend with you today. Tom Logan is an Idaho poet with a couple of poetry collections under his belt, and we'll have him tell you more about himself and his poems, and then he'll read some of his work for us. Glad to have you, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. It's good to meet you and your wife, and uh, I've been excited about this ever since I first heard about it, so I'm ready. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about what got you started. Was it a person? Was it a poem? What what happened sometime in your past where you said, wow, I can't wait to write a poem? How did you know that it had to be one of those? I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was brought up with books in my home as a youngster. I remember a set of child craft or a similar set of books that my mother had, maybe a 15-volume set or something, and it was loaded with nursery rhymes and poems and kids' stories. And a pastime of ours uh, on a weekend evening would be my sisters and I would haul those books out and we'd read to each other, read to ourselves, or our parents would read to us. And that sort of gave me a, a couple of things. The one one thing it gave me is appreciation for our language, and I become more impressed with that as the years go by. Um, language that we learn and, and can use and can read and can write, it's just uh, something that some cultures, even to this day, don't have. So it gave me an early appreciation for the English language. It also gave me a deep appreciation for rhythm and rhyme, which in those days, I'm talking about the 50s, um, in those days, that's what poetry was. Most poetry rhymed, and it was rhythmical and syncopated, and I just, I was brought up with that, and it comes through in my poetry today. It's hard for me to, to write a poem that doesn't rhyme and doesn't have some rhythm. I do some that, that don't have those things, but the easiest for me is those things that rhyme and, and have a beat or a rhythm or timber to them, if you want to call it that. So so there's that early experience of reading poems, hearing poems read, my grandfather was born in the Midwest and moved to Idaho back in his early days, late 1800s, early 1900s, and he left behind a legacy of poetry, which kind of have become the centerpiece of family gatherings and things like that. So I have something, if it's possible to have it in your genes, I guess I do have something from him there. And I, I think the other part of it is just the the writing process that I've learned. I, I have a poem from 1959. My mother, bless her heart, saved that poem from, I think, my fourth or fifth grade. 
the first poem I remember writing, and I still have it, and it's going to be a part of one of my future books. I'm going to kind of use it as a centerpiece. I just was brought up that way with poetry and my heritage and in my culture and in my background. And I've always written. I can't remember a time when I haven't been writing poetry or thinking about a poem to write. So we know you write poetry. Do you write anything else too? Do you write short stories or or what? I I tried to write short stories. I'm not very good at it. What comes easiest out of me is poetry. Like I said, most of my poetry is poetry with rhyming words and rhythm, but not all. I've written what a friend of mine calls flash fiction, which is a page or two of something from my experience or some topic that I'm interested in or think somebody else might be interested in. So I write quite a bit of that kind of of writing. I don't know if it qualifies as a short story or not. If it does, it's a very, very, very short story. And I usually try to bring in some poetic sort of verbiage and things like that and and some deeper kind of thought into the process on those one or two page short flash fictions if you want to call it that but primarily mostly poetry i'm writing a kid's story about a boy and his toy truck and the story kind of does a flip-flop it's a story about a truck who has a little boy that he's always getting out of trouble and things like that and and that book is about half done and waiting for an illustrator to team up with me and help me move that book forward. Uh, yeah, mostly poetry. I'd love to be able to do something different, but it's the easiest for me. So I take the easy way out. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you read some for us? Let's hear what you have. Okay. Um, one of the memories that I go to when I'm looking for inspiration for writing is my grandmother. I grew up being babysat by her, and she's probably the single most influential person in my life. And I remember standing with her in the garden on a hot day, and I would move around to her shady side because she was a large lady, and I was a small boy, and it just seemed to be a good partnership. But she was always singing a hymn or reciting a Bible verse for me to learn or instilling some sort of wisdom into me when I was three, four, five, six years old, probably, at an impressionable age, nonetheless. And and I'm sure she was aware of that. And so I bring her, in one way or another, into some of my writing. And the next poem I'd like to read is sort of, uh, in a way, her story. She was a, a gardener, and I spent a lot of time with her there, as I said, and I wrote this poem with her in mind, and it's a, it's a little poem, a short poem, and it's about how a young child was taught to deal with temptation and, and find a reward at the end. It's called Tempted. Strawberry sweet and ruby hue, their juicy redness through and through, dark green of leaf with sparkled dew, I think I'll try to eat one. With berries laying on beds of straw to keep the red fruit from the maw, as I look on in wondered awe, I want so much to eat one. Oh, there's an earwig, slug, and ant, who if like me, I think they shan't. Grandma said that even I can't, but I still want to eat one. So pretty there in bedded nest, the berries here so richly blessed, just one and Grandma take the rest. I'll die if I don't eat one. A pick, a pluck from off the vine, then on my tongue the sweetest wine. So that one there is surely mine, so easy to just eat one. 
Then Grandma comes with sugared cream and bowl of cherries, this my dream. And in her eye, with wisdom's gleam, rewards I didn't eat one. I don't have any further to look for something to write about than in the mirror. Um, I wrote a poem a while back called A Friend of Mine, and it's a poem about me learning to be comfortable with me. I called it a friend of mine. I like myself on good days and treat myself just fine, but bad things happen sometimes. They make me feel like crying. I'll shrug it off, for that's my way to laugh and not to pine. Assured that I will be okay, I am a friend of mine. Now, I don't always like me and couldn't tell you why. I expect it's someone else's fault. I know better, but I try to blame another, not myself, and thereby avoid the pry. I'll lay my worries on a shelf. I am a friend of mine. Some days when I'm not feeling good, I get down in the dumps. I don't behave as well I could and can't seem to shed the grumps. All right, I'll straighten up now and act the way I should. I'll take a break and tend my lumps. I am a friend of mine. I won't ignore important things like family, home, and health, and love and faith and truth and trust, for therein lies my wealth. I hope to get much better and self-polish till I shine, and to like myself much more each day. I am a friend of mine. I'm really not conceited. I'm just fond of me. It's not the way I look or speak. It's what's inside I see. It's not my clothes that I admire, nor is it my birth sign, and not my charm or hair for sure. It's just that I'm a friend of mine. I'm learning to forgive me, and at times that's quite a chore. I'm not to blame and hold no shame. Oh yes, there's one thing more. Regardless of my lot in life, and in spite of tainted core, I've learned to dance and not to whine, I am a treasured friend of mine. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of wisdom, I, I've written um, a book called um, Wisdom and Encouragements, and uh, perhaps later on I'll, I'll read a little bit of something from that, from that book. I'm proud of it because I've illustrated it and, uh, myself and, and did the writing too. Basically, it's a book of quotes. As I said before, um, when I'm looking for something to write about, I, I look in the mirror, look at my reflection of myself, look at my behavior. I'll be 70 my next birthday, and the older I get, the funnier I get. And I, I was about to get up from my recliner one day, and as I lifted myself out of the chair, I gave a little grunt sort of in an effort to get up. And I went to the kitchen or the refrigerator for a drink of water or something. When I came back and sat back down to my chair, I go, ah, it felt good to get off my feet. And right at that moment, I had uh, an inspiration that started like this. I groan when I sit and I grunt when I rise. That was just those two lines, and they percolated around in my mind for several weeks until some other thoughts began to form around those first two lines. And I wrote this poem. I call it Getting On. I groan when I sit, and I grunt when I rise. I'm gaining some weight in midriff and thighs. I stopped drinking Coke, and I'm laying off fries. My weakness is donuts and cheesecake and pies. I still have some teeth, and not two, but four eyes. I'm not nearly as smart, but I'm somewhat more wise. 
I get shorter each year and not sure of the whys, but I try to stand straight in spite of my size. My pants don't stay up like most other guys, so I'm wearing suspenders and telling white lies. I can't hear like I used to, my how time flies, but I laugh at myself amidst snorting and sighs. I don't dance as much lately and can't seem to disguise that I'm just not as limber, which should be no surprise. I'm thinking more deeply, so before my demise, I'll write some more poems, at least so I surmise. You must have been looking at me in the mirror when you wrote that. <laughs> well, I think one of my... Uh, a thank you, by the way, Steve, and Becky for having me here. Like I said, I've been looking forward to it for many days, and the preparation, I've learned a lot just from looking. Um, Becky asked me, when I asked what I should bring to read, she said, pick some of your favorites. And it's been, well, how long ago did she say that? A month or more, probably. And it's been a, a month or more journey in realizing that I, they're all my favorites. Uh, but it did, it did cause me to separate my poetry out a little bit into several categories. Probably my most prolific category I just read from, and that's whimsical things, looking at myself as a, as a, a source of humor and, and other things, because probably mostly due to my grandmother, although she can't have all the credit, I suppose. Another area that I write a lot in is sort of spiritual uh, work from a Christian perspective, although I've thought about it quite a bit, and I think just about all the things that we write are spiritual in one way or, or another, and I think that's probably the case with me at least. I'd like to read a, a couple of poems. Uh, the first one I'd like to read from my what I'll call my spiritual category. I worked at the Salvation Army family shelter, and there was a lady there at the Nampa Center who was going with a friend to drive around the country and take pictures of crosses on churches, churchyards, buildings, who knows where else. And they were going to put together a book of photographs of crosses from around the country. And she asked me to write a poem that would complement their book. So I gave it some thought and wrote this poem I called To the Cross. And it sort of uh, captures the gospel in a way, in poetic form. The first several verses, sort of the foundation. And then the second few verses, sort of where I made the process a personal process. To the Cross. Before the cross he languished, but said, Your will be done participating with the Father as he gave his only Son. Upon the cross he cried out, Father, it is done, as Almighty God forsakes him on the cross, his only Son. Beyond the cross he lives again, defeating death and sin. At our door he knocks and beckons, open up and let me in. With death swallowed up in victory, he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father who had sent him to the cross, to the cross. Before the cross I wandered, tossed like leaves upon some wind, no purpose, no direction, only knowing I had sinned. Then, upon the cross I saw him, bearing burdens not his own, punished and forsaken for the seeds of death I'd sown. Oh, beyond the cross forgiveness, he has pardoned and has blessed, as he takes my sin and casts it apart as east is from the west. And now he represents me as he pleads on my behalf with the Father who for me sent him to the cross, to the cross. Did you say the ladies took the tour across country taking pictures? Did they get that published? Uh, the sad part of the story is I'm not sure if they ever did or, or didn't. I left the shelter and they 
uh, left before I did, and I never really touched base up after that to find, find out if anything ever came of it or not. They could have called it Across the Country. Oh, yeah, you're thinking. <laughs> I'll read one more from this spiritual category before I move on, and I can go back and forth as time permits. I mentioned my grandmother. Her name was Charity, and I also mentioned that she would sing songs in the garden, mostly the old hymns, and I can't remember exactly what hymn the word billows, B-I-L-L-O-W-S, was a word in one of the old hymns that she sang. And I, I remember hearing the song. And for some reason or another, that word has stuck with me since childhood. And I wrote a poem primarily so I could use that word as really as a tribute to my experience with her. I named the poem What Billows Roll. When darkness falls at midday, comes even darker night, and trumpets sound the warning when bravery finds flight. When what we cling to falls aside on forlorn, windy shoal, is swept to deep and dark beyond, who knows what billows roll? When hope is gone forever, with embered pyres a rage, and bugles call surrender, what next will turn the page? When smoke obscures our compass and bells no longer toll, who rights the ship and sails her, who knows what billows roll? When thunder beats a warning and storm clouds fill the sky, the tempests wail, be wary all, and whines a mournful cry. When dark skies fall amongst us to cover heart and soul, from where the light to pierce the dread, who knows what billows roll? When winds of time have ceased to blow and you've weathered every gale, you stood aright to face the night and pass beyond the veil. What beckons out upon the stars, what treasure there, what goal, as upon some grand adventure, who knows what billows roll. That's, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Good for you. Thank you. I mentioned when we were visiting a little bit earlier about different categories that I found that I'm writing in, in response to Becky's question about my favorites. And I was actually surprised that I could kind of delineate between several different groups, a spiritual group, a whimsical group, and a new area that I'm going into, which is kind of nautical in a way. I have no idea where it comes from, but it's a lot about Scotland and Ireland and life on the high seas and that sort of thing. They're kind of an extension of kind of a darker side of my writing, and I don't mean darker in a negative way, but there's definitely a part of me that sort of leans in a direction from time to time. I think it probably came about because of the time of day that I'm most productive in my writing, uh, and that time of day starts probably at midnight and ends somewhere around 4 o'clock a.m., and I wake up at night with a, th a thought in my mind, and if I don't get up and write it down, I lose it. So my wife is not a stranger to waking up in the middle of the night wondering where I've gone, and she has no further to look than down at my typewriter writing down something that's come to me in the night. So I'll read a couple of writings that kind of reflect those kind of things when I write how I write, kind of a darker tone to some of the things that, that I've read so far. This one I've called After Midnight. 
It's past midnight, and the full moon sends spears of silver darting between clouds that drift across a starlit sky like pools of India ink bordered with polished chrome. Ghosts descend to whisper around the loose shingles and weathered eaves of the third-story roof. Listening closely, I hear their morbid moans, or could that be the wind that scuttles the shutters, rusty hinges, and causes them to groan so? With blankets drawn to chin and knees nearly so, shadows dance their grotesque twisting and turning on the walls surrounding the fireplace. Sparks crack and snap like echoes of breaking bones. What lost companion comes seeking solace on such a night but one who comes in distress, clad in gowns of pastel blues and stardust and raven hair, eyes of sapphire that pierce the soul and haunt to the core? A siren song that calls one away to the land of silence and sleep. Dreams follow closely and peace settles upon hearth and heart. Shadows frolic amongst the wings of angels as they stand sentinel while I wonder in sweet forgotten thoughts that come only in the darkness. Graying fingers of dawn approach and press back against the night. Dark and shadow manage a slow retreat into the nooks and crannies of the day. Light lays to rest the slumber of the deep as I arise to face the wonders of today. That was great imagery, the, the part, what was it, the black ink and the chrome edges or whatever. That, that's great. What, uh, where that came from was one night as I was on janitor duty, I walked out and it was kind of a stormy night, dark clouds, but there was a full moon behind the clouds that left a silver, kind of a silver lining as the dark clouds passed in front of the moon. And I was struck with the image and started to put words together for a poem right then. And as I said earlier, I didn't finish that up until the wee hours of one morning when uh, some other words and, and things came to mind in the night. I would say almost entirely the things that I write are a journey short journey sometimes, sometimes a little longer. Most of the time a journey from darkness to light, from bad to good, from far to near. There always sort of seems to be some sort of theme involving a journey. I wrote a poem called After the Frost. It sort of, sort of tells a story of, of a journey. After the Frost. A chill wind pierces the warmth of mind and marrow. A gray shroud forms to cover my thoughts with forlorn. Shadow and doubt tiptoe in to discourage a hope. Dampness lies down across the landscape of the soul. Entombed memories escape now into consciousness. Thoughts come filtering up from the recess of the forgotten. Heavy with regret, they toss and tumble about the psyche. They seem to couple with their darker companions, shame and failure. A cold blanket covers the contour of my spirit. It levels the appearance of the present. It leaves a crystal covering of sage green and ashen white. Frost has won its place upon my heart. Warmth will return on the dawn. Light will penetrate the chill. Ice will turn to sequined droplets and adornment to crown my troubled brow.
I'll do one more from sort of this category, if you will, is darker category that, that I seem to be able to write about. I might also mention that the real reward, the real prize for me in writing a poem is not actually writing the words down. It's not reading the poem, and it's not the rhythm and, and other things that I talked about earlier. The fascinating part for me is the process by which one day one of these poems don't exist, and the next day, there it is. That is huge, and I never really thought of it till I began in earnest to put a book together and really think about what to put in the book and, and how to write for the book. And it's just, for me, basically, when God said there's nothing new under the sun, I have to give him credit. Barry Manilow, when he was being interviewed on Johnny Carson one night, Johnny asked him where he gets all these ideas and words and music for the songs that he writes. And his comment back was, they are already out there. All he has is the gift to be able to reach out and grab those things. And I think it's much the same with me and maybe others as well. When we write, these things exist. Our gift is the ability to, to see them and grab them and really give them life on, on a piece of paper. My dad was an outfitter and guide in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness Area, Frank Church Wilderness, before they were wilderness areas. And as a youngster, I spent a lot of time on horseback and out in hunting camps and fishing camps and really learned how to become a part of the out of doors and how to appreciate it. And we have an abundance of valuable experiences like that in our state. A poem that I wrote kind of reflects some of my time spent out in the wild places of the state. This one's called Silent Nights Reflections. Winter's lace clings to my window and filters light through frost. Colored lights and Christmas moon glow on lonely hearts embossed. Pine boughs flocked with winter snow, the forests quiet deep. Each still my heart and let me know old memories mine to keep. The lake reflects the moon's white trail across its icy way. The night is cold with windy wail as sparkled shadows play. The coyotes howl will pierce the dread and others join the choir. Faces quake with masks of red, reflections from the fire. A winter's night while out alone on Mother Nature's breast, lonely soaks into the bone while longing for some rest. The want for sleep, yet wide awake, I long to close my eyes against the chill and frozen break, deep slumbers, quiet sighs. I drift away into the night to dream a dreamer's dreams and seek to join some winsome flight of imagination's schemes. Thanks again, Tom. Thanks for coming and reading, and have a very happy new year to you and to all our listeners. I am going to be reading our friend Mai Henke's memoir titled The Faithful God I Didn't Know. And before I start, I want to beg Mai's forgiveness as well as our listeners' forgiveness because I'm sure I'm going to butcher some of these Vietnamese words, but I'll do my best. Early Life and Family I lived in South Vietnam from 1952 through 1972 during the Ho Chi Minh takeover. My family consisted of 10 people, my parents and eight children. 
I had four brothers and three sisters. Three daughters, I was the second, were followed by three sons, one daughter and the last son. My mother's name was Fan Tai Chung, and my father was Pham Kang. Both of my parents are now deceased. We lived in a small rural village that consisted of approximately 100 families. Because our village had no businesses or markets, we walked to other villages to purchase goods and sell fish. My father was a fisherman who fished on the ocean. When the summer ocean season was over, he fished for freshwater fish on the river and the small lake near our home. The ocean was about a mile away, and the lake was much closer, 500 to 1,000 feet from our house. I often went with my father after sunset to fish on the ocean. We had a small boat and fished at night, because that was when the fish were active. We would fish all night. Sometimes I fell asleep in the boat. Many other boats would be in the water around us. All the boats had lights. We fished with poles, but if a large school of fish was nearby, we called the fishermen with the nets to come help us, and they would share the catch with us. I had a lot of fun fishing with my dad. We would catch small fish, big fish, and even squid. In the morning, my mother would come out to the shore to meet us. She'd sort the fresh-caught fish into two baskets, place a long stick between the baskets, and carry them balanced on her shoulders to the market to sell. If our catch was small, she'd walk to a market that was three miles away. If we caught a lot of fish, she'd walk to a village about ten miles from ours that had a large market located along the highway. She could sell fish there for a higher price than at the nearby market. The big market with all the stalls lined up on both sides of the road was a mile long. Many people shopped there for clothes, shoes, pots and pans, even furniture. That's where we went to buy necessities for the new year for our family. Because we did not have much land to grow our food, we often worked for others in the village. My mother and I labored in the rice fields, both planting and harvesting the rice. Our own plot, which was one-third to one-half acre in size, could not provide enough rice for our family. We supplemented by growing phi lan and phi mi, potatoes and yucca, in our backyard garden. Our daily diet consisted of rice, fish, and vegetables. With the income my family earned making fishing nets, we bought meat, clothing, and medicine. We kept a small boat at the lake so we could fish there, too. We also collected underwater plant roots and used them to fertilize the potatoes. One of my jobs at the age of nine or ten was to row a boat out on the lake to gather lake weeds, another plant we used to fertilize the garden. When the fishing season was good, my mom and I walked far away from our home to buy salt. We used it to ferment fish to make the fish sauce we sold to help our family survive until the next fishing season. My family built our house ourselves. First, we climbed the mountains three to four miles away and cut bamboo and different kinds of trees to build the frame. Then we dug mud from the lake and mixed it with rice straw to fill in the holes in the frame. After that, we covered the outside with more mud. We also smoothed the inside walls with one or two inches of mud. The house had three rooms. One was the kitchen and main living area. Another was where the entire family slept. And the last was for remembrance of our ancestors. My parents placed pictures of our deceased relatives on a mantle to remember them. Like the walls, the floors were also made of dried mud. We swept them clean of debris each day. I don't remember windows, but I do remember the house had two doors. All the cooking was done in a heavy iron wok-type pot over a fire built on the floor. We used wood for cooking fuel. The entire family spent time each day gathering sticks and dried leaves for our fire. And every week or two, I would go into the mountains with my cousins to collect firewood.
We'd gather dry wood pieces and sticks, tie them in bundles, and carry them down to our homes on our shoulders. That supply would last a week to ten days, and then we'd have to climb the mountains again to forage for wood. We'd be gone all day. Because we didn't take lunches with us, we sometimes stole melons from the fields along the road for something to eat. As a child, I had no toys. Instead, I dug holes in the dirt to collect seeds that fell from trees and played with them. Sometimes I played games with my friends. But most of the time, I worked. When I was five or six years old, I started weaving fishing nets with my cousins at night. When we got hungry, we'd sneak over to the neighbor's coconut tree. My older cousin would climb the tree to pick a coconut to share and carry it down with a stem between his teeth. One night, he dropped a coconut, and it made a loud noise when it hit the ground. The neighbor woke up and came out to see what made the noise. One of us grabbed the coconut, and we all darted into the bushes. My cousin in the tree stayed there, hiding in the fronds. We kept very quiet, and finally the neighbor went back inside. Even though we worked all the time, I have good memories of laughing and being a kid. My grandparents on my mother's side lived in a different village than we did. My grandfather was a self-proclaimed psychic. He was very gentle and kind and always wanted to help people. He also knew how to use herbs for medicinal purposes. He rightly read my palm to predict that I would be married in a place far away from our village. But I never dreamed I'd be married on the other side of the world. The village my grandparents lived in had a stream running through it from the mountains. Wild jungle animals lived in the mountains, including a tiger that followed the stream to the village and scared the villagers by roaring at night. One night while I was there, the tiger growled not far from my grandparents' house. I was very scared. My grandfather went outside and growled back at the tiger. He talked to the tiger, and the tiger left the village and did not come back. Another incident that stands out in my mind happened when my brother, the oldest son, was about five years old. He suddenly became ill with stomach pain and a headache. The family prayed to Buddha, promising to sacrifice a pig if my brother recovered. I was raised as if we were Buddhists, but we didn't have a Buddha statue in our home, and no worship was involved, although sometimes we prayed to Buddha. My grandfather said the cause of the illness was our grandmother, who, he said, had had a miscarriage. According to him, the baby that was miscarried came back to take my brother. However, my grandmother had never had a miscarriage. A few days earlier, December 29th, our family had celebrated the new year with fellow fishermen who'd gathered in our home. My dad killed a pig for the party, and while my mom was cooking for everyone, my little brother picked a scrap of raw meat off the dirt floor. My guests saw what my little brother did and made an ugly face at him. My dad saw the incident, but he could not say anything to the guest, so he smacked my little brother on his face. Later that night, my brother got a headache and said his stomach hurt. We gave him medicine to help his stomach, but it did not work, and he died on January 1st. My father thought he killed his son because he hit him. Our family was very sorrowful for a long time. In 1957 or 1958, when I was five or six, I attended school in Min Thang Binh Din. I enjoyed school, but I was only able to attend for two or three years before the Ho Chi Minh communist regime overtook the area where we lived. They captured and eventually killed my teacher, which made me sad. Later, they murdered my second cousin, who was also a teacher, and buried him upside down. Shortly before the complete takeover by the Viet Cong, they seized a local government worker who was our neighbor. They held him for a week to ten days before they shot him and left him in the middle of a road near my grandparents' house. 
Then they called the man's wife to come and get his body. I walked that road each time I visited my grandparents. The blood remained for months until the rains came to wash it away. The communists gave concerts for the village people to convince them that life would be good under communism. Life changed for all the villagers, but the communists did not make life better for us. At the first concert, when the singing and dancing ended, the Viet Cong announced they were going to hang the enemy. The enemy was anyone they'd captured who worked for Kwat Gia, our government. That night, they hung two people. I was only 10 or 11 and very frightened by my introduction to the violence of man against man. Watching such a horrifying event made a lasting impression on me. Before their complete takeover, the Viet Cong hid in the hills and came to our village at night to ask us to support them. My parents gave them rice, even though they had all of us children to feed. About three months later, I went to another concert with a male cousin, Don, who was 18 or 19. After the concert, the communists told us how good they were in comparison to our Kwat-Gia government. They tried to convince the young people to join them and fight the government. Don enlisted in their army and fought for four or five months before he was killed in the fighting. Some of the people in the village were asked to dig holes using pointed bamboo sticks as trowels so the Viet Cong could place landmines. The communists said if we did not do as they asked, there would be consequences. I knew that meant torture or death. Within about a year, they completely took over our village. We lived under the Viet Cong for approximately two years. They had big guns in the hills above our village. At night, they fired into the valley below. When the shooting started, my family would hurry underground to sleep in a bunker my father built. It was damp and cold, and the sound of the guns scared me. I was 10 or 11 years old at the time. One day, while we were living under communism, my aunt No and I walked to a village two hours away to sell fish. To cover more distance, we separated, each taking half of the village. Our plan was to meet later. After I sold all my fish, I walked to the meeting place, but No was not there. I waited for 30 minutes. Because it was getting late, I started walking, so I would arrive home before dark. I had to cross the main road, which was guarded by Kwatgia government soldiers, to reach the road that led to my house. I hid it, the money from the fish sales inside my pants because I was worried the soldiers would stop me to ask where I was from or to rob me. If I told them the name of my village, they would have considered me their enemy. I was frightened to death. As I walked along the road to my village, I constantly glanced back over my shoulder to look for soldiers who might be following me. From what I knew of soldiers, robbery, rape, and death were strong possibilities and I hadn't forgotten the hangings. My grandfather once told me that if I was ever afraid, I should touch my thumbs to my second fingers and hold those circles until I wasn't afraid anymore. That is what I did until I arrived at my grandparents' house two hours later. For me, the journey seemed to take hours and hours. Every step I took, I wondered if I would make it safely home. This was the first instance that I remember being in real danger and getting through it safely. I now know God was taking care of me long before I knew him. My aunt also made it home safe and sound. Shortly after that, I traveled to Bung San, a neighboring large village, where they grew sugar cane and made sugar. I walked from our village down the main road to a bus stop and caught a bus to Bung San to buy sugar and rice paper. On the return trip, I got off the bus on the main road and started for home. While I was walking, rain started coming down and the sugar and the rice paper got wet. 
I was upset because we lost money when some of the sugar and rice paper melted away. A small one-engine plane flew over the road. I was very frightened because I knew it was a government plane. I also knew our government considered people from our village to be enemies. I was afraid that if the pilot saw me, he'd think I was a Viet Cong and shoot me. My heart pounded with fear as I hid beneath trees and bushes, hoping to make it home safely. Later, when the Americans entered the war, they came to our village looking for Viet Cong soldiers. We'd heard that a G.I. raped a girl in another village, so my grandmother hid me and my sister in the house behind a door to keep us safe, in case the Americans searched the house. They did search the house, but I was so thankful they did not find us. After that, our village was under fire almost every day by the Vietnamese government. Smoke bombs were used as markers for the pilots to know where to strike. We'd see the smoke, and not long after, the bombers would zoom over our village, dropping bomb after bomb. One day, during the rice harvest season, I was cutting rice with my parents and my aunt and uncle. When I saw smoke bombs being dropped near our home a quarter mile away, I began to cry. I knew my grandmother was there with my younger brother and sister. I was sure they would die. My mom was afraid my cries would be heard and the pilot would drop a bomb on us, so I was told to be quiet. We were simple, unsophisticated village people whose lives had been turned upside down by war. To my mom, it made sense that somehow an airplane pilot could hear my cries. The plane came in, flying lower and lower. We all ducked under the water so we couldn't be seen. After the bombing stopped, we hurried home to look for my grandmother, brother, and sister in the tunnels the villagers hid in during the bombings. After searching from house to house and tunnel to tunnel for about 30 minutes, we found all three of them in one of the bunkers. They were fine, except that my brother had a small cut on his hand caused by shrapnel when he was still above ground. Six other family members didn't make it to the tunnels that day and died in the bombing, so that was a very sad time for us. My childhood consisted of working in the rice fields, picking leftovers from other people's fields, gathering seaweed, and searching for fuel to cook our food. When the war came to our village, the sound of gunfire and explosions and the fear of bombings filled our days and nights. The fighting also ended my brief education, and I lost the innocence of childhood due to the horrors I experienced. I watched executions hid from the Viet Cong and lived with the loss of family members. In 2013, I flew from America to Vietnam to see my family. While I was there, I visited my hometown, where I was born and raised until I was 13 or 14 years old. That's when my family moved to Dang Chiu and later to Quy Nguyen. Many things had changed in our village. The road I used to walk was no longer there. It had been widened and paved so vehicles could drive on it. Everything was so different that I barely recognized the village. The area didn't have as many coconut trees, and the lake that used to be big, wide, and long was now shorter and smaller than when I lived there. I felt lost and sad. I loved the valley I grew up in, but I didn't like it now. All my favorite landmarks were gone. Only in my childhood memories could I still see how our village once looked. Let's end with some kid chuckles. One day, Elisa got a new desk in her room, and when she put things in and out of it, she felt like an officer. <laughs> According to Toby, he and his brother sleep late because boys are more sleepful. 
Yeah, well, they get that from their dad. (laughs) Elisa sewed Becky a pretty pocket bag with a bow for her birthday. Toby hand-sewed two pockets, and Brady said, I made you some cantaloupe for your birthday, but I lost it. (laughs) When we had company, Brady said, I'm going to sit by my mommy's self. (laughs) Toby was quite excited after Sunday school. Mom, he exclaimed, we had a really neat story. This lady was almost all out of flour in her thing, and she made this man some food. And you know what? When she went back to her fridge, there was more. (laughs) Brady said, If I didn't have a mommy... I'd pray for one. <laughs> Aw. One morning, Becky asked Brady what he was doing in our bed when we woke up. He said, I wanted to give you some love and that's going to finish it off for now. Before I sign off, I have one more short little poem for you. And you will be glad to know that I did not write this. This is a Ralph Waldo Emerson that I think is very fitting for the new year. Actually, it's a prayer. For each new morning with its life, for rest and shelter of the night, for health and food, for love of friends, for everything thy goodness sends. Thanks so much for listening, and I wish you all happy reading in 2018. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.